The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, discuss Russia's T-14 Armata tank, and we do a deep dive with special guests into the view from South Asia. How are countries like Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh reacting to a war far to their west, and what does that mean for the region as a whole? Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 25th of April, one year and 60 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, The Telegraph's South Asia correspondent, Joe Wallen, and journalist, Tushar Shetty. Joe and Tushar are joining us from their new venture, the Beyond the Indus podcast, that looks at South Asian politics, explaining the region to listeners from the rest of the world. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start, if I may, with Ukraine getting its citizens out of Sudan, the airlift that's going on at the moment. number of international countries, number of different countries all attempting now in this lull. And I think it's a lull rather than a ceasefire in Sudan to get their people out. The Ukrainian, the main intelligence director of Ukraine's defence ministry, have said on, on Telegram this morning that they've got 138 people out, 87 of their own citizens, I think some Georgians, some Peruvians as well, out to Egypt, 138 in total. They've not said how they did it, which would be interesting to see, but they're saying all their 87 citizens that most employed in the aviation industry from reports are out there just as an aside there are so there's a lot happening at the moment after this u.s brokered quote-unquote ceasefire like i say seems to be holding at the moment but all the others have collapsed so this 72-hour window is probably more like 48 hours and we're already well over 12 hours into that so we shall see. There's a there's an RAF C-130 Hercules, a fat Albert, in the air at the moment, heading north out of Sudan back to Cyprus. So the, the British airlift is underway. But um, yeah, that will be that will be all over the the press later. You'll be able to see that. Back to Ukraine. So in the country in Kupiansk. So now we are about 80 k's east of Kharkiv, so the northeast of the country. A local history museum was uh, was hit by shelling overnight, at least one dead and 10 injured, um, although they're expecting to find people, or maybe bodies under the rubble that's left there. President Zelensky wrote, the terrorist country is doing everything to destroy us completely, our history, our culture, our people. We've got a video on our website, but you'll see it elsewhere on social media, that the place is totaled. Again, no no military targets there or, or nearby by the look of it, and it's... Um, difficult to see that this isn't a continuation of that effort to erase culture but I'll let you make the judgment on that elsewhere there are attempt oh sorry there are reports from Russia or we pro Russian uh, telegram channels that are saying that Russia's Russian troops are using anti-thermal blankets to hide from drones so basically 
blankets that that retain your heat or do not allow the heat of the human body to escape and therefore be visible to thermal cameras. Now, this is obviously, as you can imagine, of more use to those in more static positions, so either sniper teams or once you've gone once you've gone firm in a position and you are you're dug in for the night if you if you like it's it, you know if you're running around and in the assault or or doing any kind of other activity of loading supplies or running a gun line then these things aren't really going to do an awful lot because if you're moving you will break the seal and you'll give off you give off heat but yes i mean they they are there these things do work they're out there but like i say they're they're, they're large blankets you've got to sort of hide underneath and like some sort of harry potter cloak so if you're if you are in a more mobile unit they they are not so good i mean this technology trying to hide people and trying to mask this, the the hot engine signature from ground vehicles and also aircraft i mean this is this is all this has been around for years trying to mask that signature you know the mark 9 alpha links that we had in afghanistan that that used to blow the hot engine in the the exhaust from the engine up into the rotor blades to disperse that that uh, that heat heat signature that's the that's the sort of latest wizard wheeze but it's very tricky to hide the the temperature of of, of one's body let alone the the uh, equipment radios get hot batteries get hot tanks and all the rest of it it's very it is very difficult but it's been long been sought after to remove ourselves from the battlefield back which takes me back to so on the battlefield there are reports that the uh, the Russian T14 Armata tank is in use. Again, this was a, a Russian source talking to Russian state media, so we've got to take it with a pinch of salt, and I will I will digest that salt in a moment, if I may. The source said that these the T-14s have not yet participated in direct assault operations, but they have been fitted with extra protection on their flanks, and crews have undergone combat coordination, which I, I hope means training, or I presume means training. Now, British military intelligence said in January that Russian forces were reluctant to accept these tanks because of their poor condition and described any deployment of the T-14s as a high-risk decision mainly taken for propaganda. They also went on, this is British MOD, saying that production is probably in the low tens. These things were supposed to be, there's supposed to be 2,300 of these things by 2020, but production is probably in the low tens and commanders are unlikely to trust the vehicle in combat. So allow me just to go back briefly. So Second Chechen War, 1999 and 2000, very, combat was very intensive in urban areas, and tanks tanks are always vulnerable in urban areas because you can't cover a tank with armour. It just simply will not move. So you, you put the majority of the armour in the frontal arc, if a 60-degree arc. Imagine standing on top of a tank and holding your arms out in front of you in a sort of V-shape formation that's the frontal arc and that's where all the armor is on the front of the hull and the uh, and the turret and sort of the first third if you like down the flanks of the uh, of the front of the vehicle you can't put armor everywhere because it, it like i say it just won't move so you ha- they are very thin on top and at the back and under the belly and in urban situations where um, soldiers can get on rooftops and and uh, and elsewhere bridges and what have you and fire down onto tanks they are extremely vulnerable from above so Russia's experience of the Second Chechen War saw how vulnerable, how they really were vulnerable in, in urban combat. That was then underlined in Georgia in 2008. They prevailed through through mass, really. I mean, the, they, the, their equipment did not perform brilliantly. And then around about that time, 2008, Russia came out with these um, defence reforms called New Look, which was supposed to revamp the whole thing. And that was what kicked off this programme. So the Armata programme is tanks and an infantry vehicle. And I think there's a an artillery piece in there as well. But started with great fanfare. But then you had the endemic corruption of the Russian system 
and the global financial crash in 2009. So this, the production of these tanks were heavily impacted by that. And like I say, they were eventually unveiled on the May the 9th parade, the Victory Day parade in Moscow in 2015. But we've never seen them since. And if there are if there's a battalion's worth, if there are a hundred of these things, I think that would be that would be fanciful, and they're just not they're just not there. They are they are a bespoke item that they work for a bit and then break down and have to be have to be sort of you know there's a, it's very labour intensive to keep them going. On paper, they look terrific. They're supposed to have, or they do have a, a 125mm smoothbore gun, but the turret is designed, and it's, it's assessed that the turret design is such that it could take a 152mm gun if at some point. Now, that would be, I mean, that's a huge weapon on a, on a tank. It's also got a 7.62mm remote weapon station on the turret, an active protection system which can detect an incoming round and fire a projectile out at it, the sort of next layer of defence to try and stop things hitting the vehicle. You know, the guide to tank warfare is is don't be there, attack from a different flank. Don't be there, don't be seen. If you're seen, don't be hit. If you're hit, don't be penetrated. If you're penetrated, don't be killed if you're the crew members. So, you know, you don't want the projectile to hit the turret, to hit the tank. If you can stop it getting near you, that's good. So these new active protection systems are almost like air defence, but, you know, on a micro scale, they... They detect stuff coming towards the tank and then fire projectiles at them to push them away. So it's got one of those. But most importantly, it's got a separate crew compartment. Still going with the three-person crew, which is different to most Western armies have four. But Russia uses an automatic loader for the gun, which is fine. You reduce the size of the vehicle and uh, you know fewer people to have to to look after and worry about and all the rest of it but you know these things are quite temperamental it's quite if you think about what it's got to do select a weapon a round shove it up the barrel close the breech etc etc pretty technically <laughs> confusing and difficult at the best of times and that's before someone starts shooting at you so they believe in these auto loaders fine they've gone for this separate crew compartment at the front that's armored it separates them from the from the turret and all the explosives held in there. We've seen the, the T-72 turret throwing competition since February last year. So you know, there's a lot of high explosive in that turret and that doesn't mix well with uh, with the crew. So a separate crew compartment in these T-14s is one way of trying to protect them. And they are big. These things are comparable in size to a Western tank, an Abrams or a Challenger, Leopard 2, that kind of thing. It's about 50% bigger than a T-72. So great. They are fantastic on a factory forecourt or in, in the showroom coming to you soon. But, you know, they've not been proved reliable. It doesn't all work at the same time. We've not seen it beyond the training ground or the May Day parade with a massive logistic tail just around the corner. So whether or not they are able to cut the mustard in Ukraine, I'm very doubtful. And that's before you start trying to integrate them with, with all the other bits and pieces. I said Armata was a family. To give you an idea of how... This program has suffered for love and money, basically. The T-15, which is um, an infantry fighting vehicle, is it, that's nowhere. I mean, there's there's a couple of these things that were bespoke produced, but they're not running off in the numbers that they that they need to do under this new look program. So a very long winded way of saying they might have this shiny new tank, but I, I think it's probably a bit rubbish and it's never been used in combat properly before. And, uh, and, and we wait and see. I will um, I'll take a little pause there. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Denley, can I come to you next before we go to our guests? Francis, what are the latest diplomatic updates that you've been looking at? Thanks, David. Well, the big news in the last couple of hours is that President Biden will be running for re-election. Now, I'm only going to reflect on this in the context of the war, whilst, of course, there's many different other reasons one would want to be covering this. 
of course, to say that Biden has been robust on Ukraine would be an understatement. And so in the context of the war, this does really matter. The weapons, the billions of dollars of support, his symbolic visit to Kiev, to offer just some examples. And if he wins, then one can expect that support to continue, given the way that Biden has defined this war as being about something more fundamental than only America's interests. And yet there are some this morning who are pro-Ukraine who are, I think, quite concerned about this. With Biden running, a man for whom few Americans are that enthusiastic, it has to be said, according to polling, it does give the Republican Party an, an easier target. And there is some, you know, given the, the vocal skepticism in the Republican Party about Ukraine, at least amongst the leadership, not necessarily amongst the grassroots, there is, I think, an anxiety that this might make a Republican victory more likely and that having potentially big implications for Ukraine, particularly, of course, if Donald Trump were to win. But even Ron DeSantis, has, his question marks have been raised as to what his view on Ukraine really is, although the, the first signs are not necessarily positive. The other aspect of this, of course, is that it is risky for Biden to be choosing to run again. I mean, in the last campaign, it was a pretty unique set of circumstances. One reason, of course, being Trump, another being the fact that it was during a pandemic. He wasn't expected to be on the on the campaign tour, as it were, as much as one might normally be. And he will be the oldest president in American history in contesting this election. And so that might have implications. It may sharpen the mind amongst a certain core of American voters in a way that perhaps it hasn't yet because he's not on the campaign trail. So it's an interesting set of circumstances, and I'm, I'm interested to hear listeners' perspectives on this. I did think it was interesting as well that one of the key phrases in the campaign launch video was, as Americans, we believe in freedom and liberty, and we believe that our democracy will only ever be as strong as our willingness to fight for it. Now, this is obviously intended for a domestic audience, but it does have some resonance on an international level in the context of the shifting geopolitical plates caused by this war. So I thought that was quite interesting, and that will be something that we'll come to, I'm sure, later on in the context of our guest today. Now, in other news, I did just want to draw attention to the fact that Sergei Lavrov has attended the UN in New York on to chair two UN Security Council meetings. Now, Russia, of course, now have the presidency, as we've touched on in the past. And uh, at one of these meetings, the UN Secretary General did sort of give him both barrels, say that uh, Moscow's invasion is causing massive suffering and devastation to a country and its people. And yet the optics are still terrible. You know, you've got Russia chairing these meetings. You've got Lavrov shaking hands with Antonio Gutierrez. It's not exactly the look of it, diplomatic isolation that the West sought to have with regard to Russia. And one can Imagine the Ukrainian reaction. They're saying this is an impeccable hypocrisy. Lavrov chairs the UNSC justifying war, mass killings, total destruction and with international law. Russia must be designated a sponsor of terrorism and expelled everywhere. And an advisor to the Ukrainian president has called for Russia to be expelled everywhere. So it's not just sort of Ukrainian commentators that are saying this is actually the Ukrainian government itself. So very strong words indeed. Now, staying with the UN briefly, the grain deal is still uh, ongoing, frustrations around that. There's been a proposal to approve an extender deal, but Ukraine are saying that in order for that to take place, then there needs to be more pressure put on Russia. As we've spoken on about in the past, there is, Russia are using this as leverage, essentially, this grain deal in order to keep them at the top table of international affairs. And Ukraine are saying you're going to have to be harder on them if you want things to improve, because at the moment, this is them using this as a, as a means of 
getting hopefully the reduction of sanctions from their perspective, amongst other things. So that is still rumbling on, which is why I draw attention to it. Closer to home in Europe, the EU is giving a further tranche of 1.5 billion euros in macro financial assistance to Ukraine. Again, not anything new particularly, but whenever these things emerge, I think it's important to draw attention to them. The cost of this war is extraordinary. And I think I'm right in saying that when British, I think it was during the Falklands War that Margaret Thatcher gave the advice to uh, to other leaders not to have a uh, chancellor present in your war cabinet because I don't think she did because they're on their eyes sort of bulge when they see how much war costs and so it is just worth reiterating this that this is costing Ukraine obviously an extraordinary amount of money but just keeping its economy afloat is costing the world a large amount of money as well and so it just is important because it has political consequences as I say and just finally one very interesting story out of Australia Australia is launching a major overhaul of its military, including accelerating plans to acquire the HIMARS, which of course will be familiar to listeners, this long-range missile system, to counter China's growing military prowess. So like Britain, they did a big uh, strategic review. Now, Britain's was before Ukraine, of course, but this is now obviously during the war in Ukraine. And in a sense, they've reached pretty diametrically opposed conclusions. Britain before the war was talking about hybrid warfare, uh, hybrid units, of course, the role of drones and technology. Whereas this is almost a return, I would argue, to a sort of more conventional view of warfare, big heavy duty weapons, mobilizing more forces, a billion dollar program to develop howitzer artillery systems being scrapped in favor of a brand new attempt to purchase 20 of the HIMARS, so a huge expansion, review of the defensive infrastructure, and really highlighting the importance of this moment for countries to reassess their strategic priorities. So they're saying this is now the largest and most ambitious of any country since the end of the Second World War in terms of the way in which they're thinking about this as a context of China's military build-up, and saying that Australia seeks to avoid the highest level of strategic risk we now face as a nation. The prospect of a major conflict in the region that directly threatens our national interest. The country cannot waste any more time when it comes to acquiring critical defence capabilities. That's according to the Australian Deputy Prime Minister. It also references the AUKUS deal, being the security partnership finalised between the US, the UK and Australia back in March, and then it will enable Australia to have nuclear-powered submarines. So a big reassessment, as I say, and I know we have a lot of Australian listeners, so very much welcome their reflections on this as well. But it's not just Europe that's considering its strategic priorities, David, it's the world. And that, of course, is going to be a subject that we'll discuss today. Thank you very much, Francis and Dom. And Francis, what you just said, I think, leads us neatly to our guests, our colleague, South Asia correspondent, Joe Wallen, and Tushar Shetty. Tushar and Joe, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, the first question, let's keep it very broad. How has the region you cover, South Asia, responded to the war in Ukraine? Is it a block? Can we describe it as such? And maybe just walk us through the sort of the important individual countries and their priorities. I, I don't know who would like to go first. Sure. So I can I can jump in on this one if you like, David. Always a pleasure to uh, to join you on the podcast. So so I think we can break it down somewhat. It's not just a sort of a block, a block vote, as it were. But we can say generally across the region we've seen strategic uh, phrases, strategic ambivalence. So we haven't had one South Asian nation vote for or against Russia at the United Nations. Now we've seen you know different countries have got different priorities. But when we look at India, so, so the I guess the country that receives the most publicity when it comes to the Ukraine Ukraine war. Um, 
a lot of people expected India to, to kind of side with the West and side with the US when it comes to sanctions on Russia. You know, India and the US overlap when it comes to a lot of Indo-Pacific policy. You know, India is a member of the Quad uh, with Australia, Japan and the US. And India's biggest concern, certainly strategic or security concern, is China, as it is with Washington. But when it comes to Russia, they, they really do differ. Russia, India and Russia have, you know, historic strategic relationships and actually, you know, India and Russia's trade has ballooned since the start of since the start of the war. And there's been a lot of reporting on on oil trade, for example. And India's actually increased the amount of oil it, incre- it imports from Russia by 22 fold since the start of the war, which is which is a really significant number. And the view from Delhi is that look, you know, we're, it's a country that, that's that's rapidly industrializing. There's 400 million people being lifted out of poverty since since the start of the millennium. And Russia offers India a, quite a whole host of financial economic opportunities, just as the US offers Delhi strategic opportunities in the region. So that's why we've seen fundamentally uh, India abstain and, and maintain relations with both Russia and the US. And India is too much of an important partner for Washington to kind of receive or, or, or to kind of be sanctioned. And we've seen Ukraine call for sanctions on India because it's continued to import Russian oil. But the US simply can't afford to push India away. You know, it, it is that key strategic partner in the region. Now, we've seen similar similar policies in Pakistan and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. And now what we've got to understand is that countries in the region are really undergoing kind of a major economic crisis at the moment. Pakistan, probably the worst in its history. We've seen Sri Lanka go to the IMF last year after defaulting. Bangladesh also approaching the IMF. These are countries that are all major fuel and food importers. Cheap fuel from Russia is simply too, it's something that can't be turned down at this moment in time. Thanks very much, Joe Tushar. Would you like to answer that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just like to add to that a little bit. I think the general uh, opinion in South Asia is common to the global south, which is we've just come out of COVID and now there's another economic crisis. Export markets are down. So countries like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka that rely on tourists and textiles respectively are finding a tough time. Obviously, we see the debt issues. So there is a bit of, I don't want to say irritation, but sort of annoyance that like this is a crucial time and now Europe wants us to put on sanctions which might impact our long-term recovery. But I think Joe can talk a little more about Pakistan. That's a very interesting political situation, which is affecting its whole diplomatic relations. But I do want to add that Russia is not just important to us economically. I think if we had to choose between the US and Russia, we choose US because it's more of a key partner uh, in the long-term strategic situation with China. But I think that Russia has a UN veto, which we've consistently relied on. It's also willing to send a lot more, export a lot more defense equipment to us, especially sensitive technology, which the U.S. is not really willing to do at this point. And historically, Russia has been more of a consistent ally. I mean, during the 1971 war, uh, when the U.S. sent the U.S.'s enterprise to support Pakistan, the Russians sent a nuclear submarine to support us. You don't just throw allies away like that. So I think that's the situation India is facing right now. Sorry, quickly, Tusha, who, who's us in that situation? Oh, uh, I'm Indian, so I'm in India. I should be a little clearer about that. Before we get Joe to talk a little bit about Pakistan, can I ask you both, just in terms of the reporting on the war, what what are civilians, what do civilians see on their televisions and read in their newspapers? Is it a particularly prominent piece of news in, across South Asia? And if it is reported, how is it reported? It's it's a very good question, David. I mean, it's it's certainly something that we see uh, see on our TVs and radios 
here, I see the, the big angle that, that we see reported here is the impact, as, as, as I mentioned previously, you know, the inflation that we're seeing, record-breaking inflation in Bangladesh, in, in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, which is, which is in part being caused by the war itself. You know, these are, these are major, as I say, fuel and food importers. So, so that's been the biggest factor, I think, across the region. Um, as Tushar mentioned, you know, there was quite an angry statement this week from Nirmala uh, Sithraman, who's the economic or finance minister here in India, blaming kind of Western sanctions for the current economic crisis across the region. So, so there is anger here that, you know, we've seen the price of flour, the price of rice, some flour oil, cooking oil, rise because of the war. You know, we just had Eid in, in Pakistan, across the region in India and Bangladesh. And it's been noticeable this year you know, families simply haven't been able to celebrate as usual, and the war's been a big impact impact on that. In terms of views amongst the public, I think that's one of the most interesting things here, and something that people don't always realise in, in the West. That according to the, the latest polls that we have, um, more Indian adults actually blame the US and NATO for, for the Ukraine war than Russia. And as Tushar mentioned there, you know, we have, India has a historic relationship with, with Russia. And there are also historic connotations as well, obviously, with views of Western European countries being, being aggressors. But that's something that we, we don't see in the West. And it's something that I think has been missed by policymakers in the West. That actually in India, as I say, there's, there's more sympathy for Russia amongst the public, according to the figures that we have, than the US or NATO. Yeah, but the interesting thing to me is that it's it's very bipolar how the social media and journalists are covering this. Because on one end, you know, Jai Shankar, super the foreign minister, is very popular by you know acerbic responses to Western journalists and diplomats. But on the other end, so it is sort of supporting the fact that we're taking our own independent stance against you know Western preaching, so to speak. But on the other end, India is also kind of thrilled to be part of this sort of network of U.S. alliances. I mean, Joe mentioned the Quad, but there's also I2U2, which is Israel, India, UAE. In US. So I think it's possibly because Modi has sort of taken this approach where he uses foreign policy successes as a way of raising his own domestic popularity, uh, as a way of saying, hey, look at us, we're in the big boys club now, you know, global powers are paying us respect. So it's, I'm not going to say we're sympathetic to Russia. I don't think most Indians would be comfortable with the war in Ukraine and what's happening to Ukraine. But it's more of a thing of we are finally able to take our own stance in the world and people are paying us attention, if you get what I mean. Can I ask you both just quickly? I mean, Joe, that stat there that you, you mentioned about people being favourable to, to Russia. What do you both think the West could do to change those to change those views? Just give India more attention, quite frankly. I think uh, one of the things that India has been gaming for is a seat at the UN Security Council, a permanent uh, seat with a veto. So I think uh, the US and the West especially paying them more attention. And, and frankly, the, I guess the opinion here is Europe is being a bit preachy when it comes to Ukraine because... I think historian Stephen Cockney put it best. The violence that Europe has seen in Ukraine hasn't been seen since 1945. But most countries in the global south, that's just another Wednesday. So India finds it kind of, in, most Indians find it kind of weird that Europeans are demanding that they pay so much attention to Ukraine when, for instance, we saw what happened in Afghanistan when the US just sort of abandoned that country. So more attention and more prestigious spots in global bodies, I'd say. Thanks to Joe. More understanding, perhaps, of, of key priorities in the region. I mean, Tisha mentioned it earlier, but the reliance of the Indian army, you know, the US sees India as a, as a key military partner, strategic partner, but the reliance of India on Russian hardware is, is quite phenomenal. According to like recent research, it's about 90% of army equipment, 70% of air force equipment comes from Russia. 
you know, I know, for example, that the US gave India a bypass for buying kind of missile defense purchases from Russia, whereas it sanctioned Turkey because it views India as such an important partner. And I think sort of similar perks to that going forward, you know, sharing of intelligence, which is something that we've seen from Moscow to Delhi in the past, could also, I think, warm, warm relations, I think. Joe, could I stay with you? Tushar mentioned you might be able to talk to us a little bit about Pakistan and its role in the region and, it, and uh, its current politics and how the war has influenced that and how that might change Pakistan and, and, and the region. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, Pakistan at, the, at this moment in time is, is really sort of undergoing its, its worst crisis really in living, living history. You know, as I'm sure we've, I've done a lot of reporting for The Telegraph on this, you know, we've got a political crisis with, with Imran Khan very narrowly surviving an assassination attempt in the autumn possibly the worst economic crisis in, in the country's history. You know, we, we did a report recently about how you know, diabetics in the country simply can't afford medicine anymore uh, and people are dying because inflation is, is so severe. And then we're now seeing kind of a resurgence or, or return to insurgency in the northwest and, and west of the country. So, so for, for Pakistan, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's something that isn't, isn't so much of a, a priority really at the moment. I mean, the country is in such a difficult situation that... What is going on in Ukraine is is not top of top of the list. I mean, Pakistan has has continued to export military hardware to Ukraine. It's got a historic relationship. It's about one point six billion dollars worth of hardware that's exported to Ukraine since since two thousand. Then again, it's turned a blind eye. You know, again, it's abstained on voting at the UN because Pakistan is keen, due to its economic situation, to take advantage of of the cheap fuel that is now on offer from Russia. So I think that's quite indicative of countries in the region. You know, again, Sri Lanka is another country that's taken advantage of that cheap, cheap fuel. It's, you know, these countries have, have, have their own problems at the moment, you know, off the back of COVID, kind of off the back of kind of gross macroeconomic mismanagement. You know, famously Imran Khan, who was then, who was then you know, the helm in Pakistan, was in Moscow the day that Russia invaded Ukraine. And a, lot, a lot was made of that. It wasn't great optics for for Mr. Khan at the time either. But yes, certainly, I mean, I think, I think Islamabad has got a foot in both campers, feet in both camps as well. Yeah, and what's interesting is that also the statement that he made when the Taliban took over Kabul, which is uh, the Afghans have thrown away the uh, chains of slavery, which is interesting for a country that is supposedly a US ally. I think we did a podcast in Pakistan a couple of weeks ago, and one of the views was that one of the reasons that the army and the generals decided that Imran Khan didn't you know, couldn't continue in power, was that he was too aggressively against the U.S. He was making a lot of, let's say, politically unwise statements against the U.S. And let's remember that Pakistan is still very dependent on the U.S. for aid, for, you know, previously military aid and uh, also bailouts from the IMF, which they believe the U.S. can influence. So I think the army and the current disposition are trying to, the current government, are trying to repair relations with the United States, while Imran Khan seems to want to go in a different direction. And he might just come back to power in October. I was just say one thing, one key thing to add, I think, as well, certainly from, from both an Indian and, and Pakistani perspective, is that Russia is is also a key partner or ally when it comes to. I mean, India. Uh, there's a lot of concern in Delhi at the moment about the sort of the, the return of the Taliban, the fact that the Taliban have failed to to enforce kind of de facto control over the country. You know, we've seen weapons flow from Afghanistan through Pakistan into Kashmir in India, and so it's totally in India's strategic interest as well to kind of maintain the relation with Russia and with Moscow to speak with with the Taliban you know that's very much a regional interest which is something again in the west that I think people have people have missed one thing I'd like to ask you both is often the 
invasion of the war in Ukraine is described as a sort of, you know, a colonial war, a neo-colonial war. Russia, the imperial power, attempting to take over a what a, a country that once was its imperial subject. Does that not speak to the South Asian experience a, at all? I mean, you mentioned the ties, the historic ties with, with Russia, but is there not an emotional or a, uh, yeah, a sort of emotional connection with, with what Ukraine is experiencing? Not really in that sense, which is surprising because I was in Berlin when the invasion happened. And it's interesting to note the contrast between the reactions in Europe and in South Asia. I think for India, especially, what was a big moment was so there are two factors. One of them is that I think in, in for India, especially, we were very focused on China. And um, honestly, the Ukraine war is a bit of a I don't want to say distraction. It's It's tragic, but it is sort of a thing that's away from our strategic space. And secondly, when Afghanistan fell and the U.S. sort of, you know, exited that quickly, it was a bit more of a shock to us. So with now the U.S. providing billions and billions in aid to Ukraine, with Europe sort of, you know, deciding to cut off oil and gas imports from Russia and thereby increasing the commodity prices globally because they're tapping into different markets, it creates a different set of problems for us. And like I said, I mean, this region's seen a lot of historic violence. It just doesn't impact or shock us the way it might shock a lot of Europeans and Americans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it can't be stressed enough, you know, how I, I think for a lot of people, perhaps still watching from the West, they consider maybe Pakistan as India's big security threat, but it's it's simply not the case anymore. And, uh, you know, eyes are very much northwards. You know, we've had regular Chinese incursions into Indian territory. You know, we did a lot of reporting about this at, at, at the Telegraph in Ladakh, in Arunachal Pradesh, so Tishar says, you know, it's this is part of the reason also why Delhi is keen to keep Russia on side because it it views Russia as perhaps one of the few countries that has some leverage with China and that can perhaps kind of cool Chinese aggression along the Indian border. It's it's a total focus on Beijing here now in Delhi, I would say. As Tushar says, you know, the, the, the war in Ukraine is is a long way from India's strategic sphere. You know, the, the big impact here really is on on living standards, is on inflation, with eyes on China. Well, that would be actually my final question before I hand over to Dom and Francis. As you mentioned, Joe, China is 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 you know is the sort of great geopolitical supermassive black hole in the region. How has China's uh, actions and uh, positions on the Ukraine Ukraine war sort of shifted or changed how South Asia understands it? I'm, I'm asking because our foreign correspondent James Kilner talks about Central Asia and he says, you know, really. Because, because of China's geopolitical might, what, when China leans one way or leans the other, the rest of Central Asia has to sit up and sort of take notice. Is that the same in South Asia? I would say not really. I think especially for India, China is much more of a longer term strategic problem. And its position towards specifically the Ukraine war, it doesn't directly impact the view here towards China. I mean, there are a lot of bodies. So, for instance, there was a BRICS summit recently. I think uh, President Lula of Brazil is, you know, trying to create some sort of a alternative body in that. We're hosting the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, which is basically Russia, China, Central Asian countries, and Pakistan, India. That's happening in Goa. So that's sort of the rival to, I don't know, G20 or something to that extent. So uh, th- there's no direct change in India's response. To my extent, Joe might have a different opinion. But to the extent that it's causing the US, let's say, to impose sanctions on China, uh, or, you know, sort of re-jiggle uh, the, um, the supply chain, like the Chips Act, which might benefit us. I don't think that's changing the position, at least for India, much on its relations with China. 
Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think, as I said, economics is the, the big priority of countries in the region. I think certainly from Pakistani points of view and Sri Lankans, an enormous debt to China. So there isn't much sort of wiggle room in terms of kind of going against Chinese policy, whether it be in, on Russia, Ukraine or, or more broadly. But as Tushar says, in India, certainly in Delhi, China is the, the, the long term security concern for, for sure. Thank you very much, Tushar and Joe. Francis Denny, I think you have a question. Thanks. Yes. Uh, thank you both very much for your time today. My first question is relating to a point you made earlier about how to try and shift the dial in a more sort of pro-Ukrainian direction in these countries. One could even go as far as say pro-Western direction in these countries. And you said paying them more attention. And I can totally accept that, that it's important to maintain strong ties with those who are perhaps on the fence and perhaps even stronger ties. But I wonder if there's another side to this, which is actually making it clear the consequences of supporting Russia and China in this context uh, around the world and with everything that's shifting at the moment. And so I just wondered whether there is sort of a, again, to return to the maxim I keep repeating all the time, which is, you know, you've got to carry a big stick, talk nicely and carry a big stick. Do we need to use a stick as well as talking nicely? Sure. So I can, I can jump in on this one. I mean, I, th- I think times have simply changed. And I think it's something that's being missed in the West. You know, India is now the world's fifth biggest economy. It's overtaken the UK. I don't think London is the one to be wielding the stick, certainly at the moment. I mean, when it comes to, you know, the UK is is, is desperate really for, for this trade deal with India, certainly it comes to a British perspective. And then when we look at, you know, the US, for example, you know, India is the US's key, key partner in South Asia when it comes to balancing China. And we've already seen the, the US give India a, a really wide berth when it comes to kind of buying Russian hardware, whereas it's it's punished other countries in NATO. You know, I gave, I gave the example of Turkey earlier. So India is in this this sort of this unusually, it's quite unique geopolitical position where where it can kind of play both sides because both sides need India. You know, the US can't afford to push India away. You know, and, and the argument from from Modi and, and, and other Indian politicians is, is that the country should be allowed to develop, and that while it shares these kind of Indo-Pacific strategic goals with with the US, as I say, with China, that actually in Ukraine they differ and that India's relationship with Russia kind of predates its kind of current strong ties with with the US, really. Uh, Yeah, and I think just to add to that, I think we all sort of understand what happened when China tried to do that, you know, with this whole wolf warrior diplomacy strategy. It kind of pushed a lot of countries that were on the fence about China, maybe had good relations more towards the US camp. Just remember, the media here is pretty lively. And uh, if Western countries try to, I don't know, try imposing sanctions or trying to bully India into supporting its position, I, I'm not sure it would reap dividends, at least in my view. Thank you. I thought you might say that. And just the last question from me, which is, I think it's just very helpful to give listeners a sense of how these countries think of Western countries. So if I were to ask you, you know, I know this is a cruel question because it depends on who you're talking about within these respective countries. But let's say, you know, we here in London talk about sort of the elite perspective or the establishment. The establishment in these countries, what do they think of, say, America, Britain, France? I mean, what is what what comes to mind for them? And is it more positive or is it more negative? Yeah, I'd I'd say you know it's you know there's been a real I mean I'm sure Tishar will agree with me there's a, there's a real surge in nationalism in India for sh- for sure um, certainly I've been here 
four or five years, and I've really noticed it, an uptick since Modi was re-elected in 2019. There's a real sense that, that you know, Modi often says this is India's century. And there's a view now that, that the West needs India more than India needs the West. And there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest that. I think, you know, there are still, uh, you know, it's, it's important to have positive relations. We talk a lot about, you know, Indian workers in the UK or getting Indian workers in the US kind of ample visas. You know, trade is really important. I do think Delhi is keen for, you know, to, to negotiate this trade deal just as much as London is. But certainly the, the sort of sounds have shifted in the last five or 10 years, or even the last year or two. Yeah, so, so, so I, do, I, do, I do think it is, is, is a time of geopolitical change for sure for countries like India, for Pakistan, for, for Sri Lanka, for Bangladesh. You know, Bangladesh has undergone a huge, or certainly until recently, it's been a huge economic success story. And countries are really courting Bangladesh now for, for investment. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what you think on that one, Tushar. Do you agree with me? But I think there's been a real, a real surge in nationalism here, certainly in India. Uh, yeah, but you know, the one thing that surprised me, especially during the podcast about Pakistan, was how virulently anti-American Pakistanis are. I mean, it's worse than their relation, their opinion of India. And I was surprised that it's a thing where if, you know, leaders there sort of are seen closing up too much to America, they're sort of brought down by like opposition politicians, which is quite surprising. As for India, I think generally speaking, we have positive a generally positive opinion about America. Luckily, they didn't press too hard in like sanctions or forcing India to stop buying oil from Russia. Britain, it's kind of like, it's, it's gone down, let me put it that way, uh, particularly since Brexit and the chaos over there. The one surprising thing I found, there's a surprisingly negative opinion about Germany of all countries, more so than France. I think France and India have better defense ties because it's sort of seen like Germany is a country that is leading the, I don't know, it, 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 I've sensed that there, if, if in Europe there's irritation towards Germany, not too much towards Britain or France and generally positive relations with the US. Like I said, the main focus is China. So, Thanks, everybody. Dom Nichols, anything from you? Yeah, I've got a couple, if I may. Hi, Joe. Hi, Tushar. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. I was struck by your comments just now about the, the sense of geopolitical change and, and momentum shifting to South Asia. And in particular, that stat you gave earlier on, that the Indian import of Russian oil has gone up 20-fold, which which could be could be good business. Well, it is good business, good business from India's point of view. But I just wonder if, that's, if that is, if there's a sense of that that is taking advantage of a weakened Russia. And if there's any sense at all in South Asia, possibly of the shine coming off the Russian brand? It's a, good, it's a really good question, Dom, actually. And so for, for the first time this year, I think 20 years, Russia has, in 2021-22, Russia was no longer India's major, largest arms importer. It was France. India signed that kind of very high-profile deal for the Rafale, the Rafale jets. Apologies for my pronunciation there. And I think the war in Ukraine, that the sense here is that we're now shifting to seeing kind of imports of military hardware from, from the US and from France, from the UK. Um, more, more expensive hardware, but better quality hardware. And there are concerns off the back of the Ukraine war that, that some of this Russian hardware isn't isn't perhaps what it was sold to be or isn't as good as it was supposed to be. But the, the tricky thing is, is that because so much of the Indian Armed Forces uses Russian hardware, at least for the next kind of decade or so, they're going to have to kind of rely on, on sort of replace parts from, from Russia. But one issue that they are having at the moment is there's about $2 billion worth of, of Russian military hardware, which is held, currently held up 
from, from arriving in India due to sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. There's currently a, a free trade agreement talk between Delhi and Moscow. And part of, part of the, or the priority from the Indian side is to negotiate trades in rupees, which will allow some of this military hardware to then arrive, arrive in the country. But I, th- I think you're right when we say that there is some of the shine that's come off, uh, certainly when it comes to military, military imports from, from Russia, I'd say. Thanks. So I was going to ask actually how how happy India seems to be with its with its reliance on Russian military equipment. I think you've I think you've kind of answered that one very nicely there. Thanks. So just one final one for me, please. We hear about the or it was, rather, it's been a little while actually since I since I've caught up with the the Chinese plan, the string of pearls as it was known, the the, the naval bases and increased maritime presence around the the um, you know the, the the Indian Ocean and the and the coastline of Pakistan and, and elsewhere. I just wonder if you could update us on where that project is. It, I wonder if it's sort of stalled a little bit, like the the Belt and Road. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that uh, I think just obviously because of some slowed growth in China and uh, the, the pace of investment in those ports in Bangladesh, and Myanmar and Pakistan isn't as quick as it used to be. I mean, there was a story recently, which I'm not sure if you guys are following. It's a Chinese engineer was arrested under the blasphemy law. I believe it was in Gwadar. So um, and you also finding a lot of Chinese investments are sort of becoming unviable. They're leading to high debt burdens. So uh, the hung, I'm not sure how effective China is, how much China is pushing this strategy anymore. It, I'm sure because of collapsing domestic growth, it has other priorities. But it does seem that the hunger for Chinese investment isn't as high as it used to be around the Indian Ocean region. What do you think, Joe? Yes, yeah, so certainly. I mean, the, you know, Sri Lanka's economic collapse, it's still, it's still despite having the IMF bailout, has got the, the, the biggest inflation or the largest inflation in Asia. You know, the, the, the statistics are still shocking. You know, Save the Children had a report recently, it's around half of families, you know, skipping meals. And this is a country of 22 million. It's a proportion of that debt that Sri Lanka owes it was to China, similar, similarly in Pakistan, which, again, is now negotiating an IMF bailout. Yeah, I'd say I'd stop short of saying there's kind of public anger towards China that like we haven't seen sort of mass protests. But certainly, I think there's been a been a bit of a coming to senses of, of, of this Chinese debt and what it means for the country's long term. I think what's interesting in in Pakistan is that we've we've seen kind of a a, a, kind of a recent string of attacks on Chinese nationals in Pakistan, particularly in Balochistan, the Balochistan province in the west of the country, which is which has had a long sort of pro-independence insurgency. And the view there is, as Tushar mentioned, the, the porting in Gwadar, that kind of all these Chinese investments come into the country and come into the region, but very little of it is trickling down to, to Pakistani citizens or, or citizens in, in Balochistan. So I certainly think there has been a coming to senses in the region. I mean, Nepal is a good example that, that really pivoted towards China and now seems to be somewhat in the middle again between, between India and China in terms of its, its policy and where it's looking for for kind of financial support and aid. Again, Nepal and Bhutan have both had Chinese incursions on their territory in the last couple of years. They have been quite widely reported. So, so I think there is this, this kind of growing concern about Chinese aggression in, in the region as well. And countries are quite, quite nervous. I think certainly politicians in Kathmandu, you know, there's very little, you know, what, what can they do when faced with a country as, as powerful as, as China? So, yeah, I'd say certainly rising nerves about Chinese aggression and coming to senses about some of this debt, for sure. 
Well, thank you, Joe and Tushar. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing your thoughts. And uh, thank you so much for joining us there. We'll come back to you for your final thoughts. And let's bring it back, of course, to Ukraine. So, Domo Francis, who wants to go first? Uh, what are your final thoughts from today? I mean, very curious to see your reaction to some of the things Tushar and Joe have been speaking about. Thanks, David. I just reflect on when we talk about the international community or the international rule-based order, that we are quite often talking about quite a narrow pool of countries who really firmly subscribe to that, whether that be within the European context and and America. But actually, you know, when you're looking at countries like the ones we've discussed today, they are less fixed in terms of perhaps the ideological prism that one would subscribe to, perhaps, and more in thinking in terms of their own interests. And I don't say that with malice, I just say that as a political reality. And it does mean that we need to think very carefully about how we engage with these countries. And I think, broadly speaking, of course, we have, the West, when I I say we, have tended to be rather naive in terms of how we've dealt with these countries. And Russia and China have, have been less so. And it's now paying dividends for them in the context of this war and also the trade relations they've been fostered between them. So that's my sort of reflection on on the conversation we've had today. And it is, of course, very important as we think about the broader implications strategically of the shifting geopolitical plates as a consequence of this war and particularly what's happening in the Pacific relating to China as well. But my final thought is very short today, you'll be pleased to hear, which is we're talking about Biden's announcement that he's running for re-election. And I just wanted to flag for our American listeners that we have just launched on the American version of our website. So if you go on www.telegraph.co.uk, it'll automate to a US version of what we produce. So you'll see more political comment from us and a more foreign policy announcement as well as news stories specifically commissioned for an American audience. So of course we've always been producing things for an international audience but this is to give American readers obviously a very interesting time a particular portal for them to see our coverage. So we're obviously very grateful to our American cousins for your continued support of the podcast, but hopefully this is something quite exciting that you'll be able to appreciate and see and it expands our coverage to you. So watch this space. Hopefully there'll be more to come. Thank you, Francis. Dom Nichols. Yeah, thanks, David. I would just go back to the point that Joe and Tuchel were making earlier on about the, I mean, ambivalence is too strong a word, but this idea that, that there are many, many areas of the world that that are that think that the that the West, US and the and Western um, Western European, the external supporters for Ukraine, only really to pay attention to big conflicts and these clashes when it's when it's close to home. And, you know, I, I, there's probably something in that that needs to ex- be explored. And the, the reason I raise that is because you can bet your bottom ruble that, that Russia is going to be exploring that. If you look at Lavrov in the UN Security Council, he is trying to say, it's situation normal, we're here, we, it's our rotating... We're the chair of the rotating presidency of the UN Security Council. We're not going anywhere. You need to start realising that uh, you've got to come and work with us. In fact, you need to realise the error of your ways. And um, I suggest you you start uh, saying sorry to Putin now before you make him any more any more angry. I mean, that's the kind of thing they're trying to say. It's, it's situation normal. They're not going anywhere. And they are going to appeal. Russia will appeal to the UN General Assembly where everyone gets a vote. And to those parts of the world who aren't as invested in in Ukraine as some perhaps closer to it or with more view on the values at risk. And I think it would be interesting to see the fallout from the General Assembly, if there's any at all, or those other nations around the world that aren't on the UN Security Council, their response to Sergei Lavrov's 
chairing of these two meetings because I think uh, f- for all the ill, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the United Nations in its current guise. It's the uh, it's the sort of least bad system we have at the moment, and you know they will play it for all they can, and we just need to guard that. But let's start by or guard against that. But let's start by taking notice of what is said, or perhaps more importantly, what is not said from all those other countries around the world. Thanks, Dom and Francis. Uh, Joe and Tusha, as our guests, would you like the very final words? If you could sum up your points today, that would be great. Or at least, you know, give us a sense of, you know, how this might change in the future and what we really should be looking out for. I just want to add one last point as to the future outlook of this. I think there was a Singaporean diplomat called Bilhari Koskin who had a very interesting perspective of this. And he said a lot of the smaller states and larger states in the global south they don't necessarily want to return to a Cold War situation where it's either the US or China. I think what they would prefer is a sort of multipolar order, not necessarily in the way that the Russians are are preaching it, but where they have a choice of different partners and countries to work with. So to people in the West who are kind of surprised at some of the positions from the global South, I'd say this. I think India, at least, is much more a Western ally than you guys might think. I think in the long term, that's the direction we're heading in. And I think there just has to be a more proactive strategy to engage the global South in the way that China has, for instance, by by infrastructure projects, etc. So um, yeah, the future isn't all that grim. Yeah, I think as, as Tushar says, like a, for, for countries in the region, certainly a multipolar world is, is something that's spoken about regularly. I mean, we had Jai Shankar, who's India's foreign minister, earlier, you know, at the end of last week, describing the relationship between India and Russia as one of the world's steadiest economic relationships. And I think that caused a lot of surprise in the West. But for, for people, or for us in India, it's not so much of a surprise. And I think it's countries are enjoying the ability to, to choose strategic partners as, as and when it suits them. But I do agree with Tushar that kind of heightened Chinese aggression, certainly in the Indo-Pacific, will definitely push India more towards the West. Pakistan, difficult to say. I mean, the country's in so much so much debt to China that it is, you know, we do hear the word sort of satellite state banded around. But certainly, you know, India, India is in this unique geopolitical position and this powerful position that India now occupies, where it can court the West, it can court Russia. It's something that's only going to increase, I would say, in the years to come. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy.